And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a tremendous week. Uh, yeah, great show today. Uh, a lot of fun on the show today. I was joined by my friend Brad Devlin from Lone Conservative and The Daily Wire, um, and we uh, we covered a lot of ground. We, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about uh, how the New York Times is calling for, uh, quote, fully automated luxury communism, whatever the heck that means. Um, we talked about... Uh, we, You'll hear. We, we covered a lot of ground. I think you guys really enjoy it. <laughs> Before I get to my chat with Brad, um, guys, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod if you haven't already. And as always, I need to remind you, just in case social media kicks me off and you can't, you won't see when uh, I upload new episodes, you got to subscribe. Got to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe. If you're on iTunes, uh, please give us a five-star rating and a good review as well. That really helps us out. All right, without further ado, here's my chat with Brad Devlin. All right, guys, we're here with Brad Devlin. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely, Good back. absolutely. So we have a ton to cover today, um, as always. Um, let, where to start? <laughs> where to start? Uh, let's start over at the op-ed pages of the New York Times, which is, of course, a wretch hot of scum and villainy. Um, a writer who I've never, <laughs> a writer I've never heard of named Aaron uh, Bastani, Bastani, um, not sure it, um, made the by far the dumbest argument for anything in the history of arguments. Um, Bastani argues that uh, the world is in crisis, capitalism is to blame, and we must embrace, quote, fully audited luxury communism, whatever that means. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's dive into that that op-ed a little bit. Uh, what the hell is this man talking about? Yeah, I really I really enjoy this op-ed because it just fully embraces the long history of horrible arguments put forth by Marxists um, since the 19th century, since it was first uh, articulated by Marx himself. Uh, yeah, luxury communism. Apparently, <laughs> it is um, in a a world where we do genetic altering, uh, create meat from synthetic cells, and are doing space mining. Um, and all of these, all of these profits are equally, equally distributed. I'm not exactly sure what his argument is because he spends the first few hundred words talking about how awesome capitalism right. is in trying to destroy veganism, which I think is a fully, uh, worthwhile undertaking by capitalism where they're creating fake meats, uh, so they don't have to go and, and kill animals. Um, so if capitalism can destroy veganism, um, that's that's the biggest victory I think since since World War II for the world. Uh, I'm kidding, of course, but yeah, I mean, really, he goes on to say that this is, this is an age of crisis, and I I laugh, I scoff at that assertion, right? He asserts that the world is defined by low growth, low product, low wages, and global poverty and inequality. Absolutely absurd, and I'm I'm hoping we can break down each one of these each one of these points point by point, uh, just to completely destroy. His argument that this is what defines the world, because I think it's it's a really myopic point. Right. Of view. Let's start with low productivity, because that seems like the most hilarious point he brings up. Actually, I, aside from like you said, the first few hundred words, basically just listing the accomplishments of capitalism. Um, obviously, capitalism created automation, created 
the Industrial Revolution created everything. Communism has never created a damn thing except for, you know, genocide and starvation and poverty. Uh, but productivity, <laughs> look at the advancements of, of capitalism, starting with the Industrial Revolution. How, how could you possibly argue that workers are less productive now than they were before? I mean, that, that seems absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if you if you look at the op-ed, it doesn't have any hyperlinks to where he's getting these statistics. And the reason is because there's no statistics that back up these claims. Uh, the 2015 report from the Economic Policy Institute said that American workers seeing their wages stagnate from 1979 to 2015. They also concede the fact that real GDP growth in the United States increased by 149% in real terms and the net productivity growth of each individual worker is increased by 64%. So that completely destroys his point about productivity. <laughs> as for the wages, it's true that as of October 2015, hourly earnings were at around $21, which is just below the inflation adjustment adjusted wages from 1979. Right. Um, but all, all of this data ignores three really, really important facts. One is the expansion of non-wage benefits that covers everything from dental coverage to transportation benefits and can account for for 30 to 40 percent of workers' earnings, um, and these and these most of these benefits sadly are, are consumed by increased healthcare costs that we can get into that we can get into a little bit later when we talk about uh, increases in costs. But the price of consumer goods over time has decreased an incredible amount. The human progress uh, did a human progress did a study to look at the time cost of household goods from 1979 to 2015. They found that the price of a fridge fell by 52 percent, a blender fell by 66 percent, a coffee maker fell by 84%, gas grills fell by 71%, home entertainment systems fell by 96%, and televisions fell by 94%. So you're working an incredibly less amount of time to afford these goods that were considered luxury goods not even not even 50, 60 years ago, but less than 40 years ago. I mean, it, it's really an incredible achievement. Yeah, I mean, just look at the like televisions alone. I mean, you can get a 40-inch a flat-screen smart TV for 300 bucks. I mean, you could get a 15-inch giant 400-pound mess in the 70s for 600 bucks. I mean, it's just it's exactly. absolutely ridiculous. And look at the wage growth between capitalistic countries and socialist countries. I mean, it's it's. I mean, how was wage growth under you know the Soviet Union? It, it makes absolutely no sense. Right. Right. The wage growth was actually incredibly stagnant because the government was controlling over 60,000 prices in the Soviet economy during the height of the Soviet Union. And, and, and that included wages. The price of wages is also a price that we factor in when we're when we're doing economic modeling. Um, anyone, I know your, your audience is predominantly young guys uh, like me. So anyone who is interested in these topics, Topics, really look up the Carpe Diem blog by an AEI scholar named Mark Perry. Follow him on Twitter. He's easy to find. He does amazing graphics that will help you explain in a way, any of your leftist friends' opposition to capitalism. Um, there's, you know, uh, th this chart that charts. It starts at a, at a zero point, and it charts over time. Right, it has about a 55.6, I believe, is the bar of inflation. It'll show you, okay, college tuition costs, healthcare costs, food costs, all, all of those costs have risen over time. But if you look at TV, software, durable goods, consumable consumable goods, all of those prices have dropped dramatically over time. And what do we see? the main dividing line between these these goods that have increased insurmount the price of these goods that have increased a ton over time versus the price of the goods that have decreased over time is government intervention um the heritage I'm, I'm currently working in the young leadership program i can't speak on behalf of heritage but heritage has done a lot of research on healthcare and tuition costs 
Obamacare, the major mandates and regulation increase premiums on young people by as much as 44%. And in 70% of U.S. counties, they're in a monopoly or duopoly situation where that hikes prices alone because of uh, anti-competitive measures. Um, Federal government now dominates 90% of the student loans market. For every dollar increase in student loans, uh, tuition increase is 63%. And there was actually a fantastic op-ed written in 1987 called uh, Our Greedy Colleges. It was written by the Secretary of Education for the Reagan administration. And it was basically saying that, listen, if we're going to expand all of these loans for for low-income students, all that's going to do is incentivize our colleges to increase the price of tuition and and really rake in more federal dollars, even though they're once or twice removed via loans. Um, So, you know, really really dive into that article. I'd encourage you to dive into that op-ed and see how this theoretical approach now is a truism when we look at education right. policy. I absolutely agree 100%. Um, you know, the, the funniest thing with, with this op-ed, and I actually had to read it twice because it was, it, I mean, it, it honestly reads like a Babylon B article at, at first. It is, it's, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely asinine. It seems like parody, but the funniest thing from this, this writer, uh, shoot, what's his name again? want to get it right. Uh, Aaron Bastani, right? Bastani. Aaron Bastani. Mm-hmm. It, it, look, and we all know that. <coughs> excuse me, sorry. The the op-ed pages of the New York Times. It's basically a communist slash anti-Semitic rag at this point. I mean, you know, remember the the anti-Semitic cartoons they published a couple months ago? But and any time you can count on any Jewish holiday, they will post a really anti-Semitic article right, right before it, so they don't have it incredible amount of backlash from the Jewish community who decides to turn right. off their phones uh, for the weekend and enjoy their time with their family and their community, right? Like, all of a sudden, it drops, and then two days later, um, the Jewish community comes back on Twitter and is like, are you serious? <laughs> again, we have to talk about the anti-Semitic tendencies of the New York Times again? That That is, the New York Times is in New York, which is, like, the largest population of Jewish folks in the United States, let alone outside the state of israel i mean come on new york times you're absolutely full of garbage this, at this, this point. new york times colonist it, it it's so funny anytime somebody writes a piece on, on socialism or communism like this it's like they're a 14 year old kid that reads marx for the first time as a high school freshman i mean like this guy aaron bassani he thinks that he's the first person to have discovered communism right like he, he's like oh i'm onto something new here I, I i've just made a huge discovery when he's just repeating the same 150-year-old leftist bullshit that, that they all repeat. There's nothing new here. There, there's nothing... You can't... You know, he tries to call it... What, what is it exactly? Uh, fully automated luxury communism. No, it's just communism. It's just... Right. Mao had the same idea. It was called It was called the Great Leap Forward, right? Over, it's, the, it's a great leap forward. And then it ended up with 60 million dead Chinese folks dying of starvation because the government is incapable of harnessing economic forces you just have to let these economic forces work there is no there, there is not a more beautiful system in this world aside from possibly the human brain than a well-functioning right. market absolutely and, and look here, my just my my overarching view on on any time we have these conversations about communism which is you know pretty frequently since the new york times is uh, constantly writing stuff like this um and I, I appreciate that you brought all those statistics um, you're obviously better prepared for the show than I am. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but so right now I'm working in the Center for International right, right. Trade and Economics um, at the Heritage Foundation. So a lot of my a lot of my day to day work this summer is focusing on 
just the absolutely myopic viewpoint of leftists, uh, how great we have it in the United States, how great OCED countries have it compared to these developing nations who are trying against a lot of very ardent mercantilist authoritarian political forces to liberalize their markets so that people can enjoy the fruits of their labor, that people can enjoy the fruits of the global economy because we live in the most prosperous time in human history bar none. You cannot compare it to any time in history. But here's my point, Brad. I'm tired of talking about how communism doesn't work. We know communism doesn't work. It's never worked any time it's been tried. It's the p- political ideology that's led to the greatest genocide in human history and the greatest genocide in terms of population or percentage of the human population since Genghis Khan, anywhere between 110 mm-hmm. and 150 million dead, mass starvation, uh, you know, mass you know, food shortages. We, we get all that. But even if communism worked, which it doesn't, and it's impossible, it, it'll never work, but even if communism did work, it wouldn't be any less evil. Communism is slavery. It, it is slavery. If you believe that, you know, slave owners enslaving the blacks in, in the segregated South uh, pre-Civil War was evil, then you also have to believe that communism was evil, because instead of just enslaving the blacks, the communists want to enslave the entire human race, and they want all of us to be a slave to the state. So even if communism was this, uh, you know, luck, luxurious, fully automated utopia, it would still be satanic. It would still be evil. It would not be, if, if it made the entire world rich and prosperous, it wouldn't be any less evil because slavery is evil. So I'm almost tired of talking about how socialism doesn't work. I'd, I'd rather talk about that it is akin to slavery. Communism and slavery are the exact same thing, and even if communism worked, it would not make it any less evil. I think that point is an incredibly important point when we're talking about the history of communism. Let's look at American slavery. The whole, the most disgusting and perturbing thing that people today realize about slavery is that they just pictured these people as free labor, as property that was completely fungible. Right. And that was also Hannah Arden's, some of Hannah Arden's um, responses to the Holocaust was the evil of the Holocaust was that they viewed these people as completely fungible, as subhuman, that they were just inputs to their desired right. ends uh, based on racial pseudoscience and this idea of white supremacy. It's absolutely disgusting. So so let's let's shift the conversation on, on why, communis- why communism doesn't work to why capitalism does work. World Bank figures from 1990 at night, in the year 1990, 36% of the world's population lived in poverty, which is defined by the World Bank as less than one dollar and ninety cents a day in 2015 10 percent of the world's population lived in poverty that's over the course of 25 years you expand those figures to 1970 more than 85 percent of a drop in extreme poverty in 1820 94 percent of the population lived in poverty in 2011 17 percent of the population lived in poverty i mean there's there's a great um book slash study by uh daniel waldenstrom and uh jesper roney which is the handbook of income distribution and it shows inequality over time that inequality was rampant during feudalism um, during during the age of monarchies and it dropped precipitously during the industrial right. revolution and even with these large and this is studying OCED right. countries I mean this is these is these are the Nordic states these are central European states this is the anglo-saxon states so a variety of welfare states um, are studied in in this in this evaluation of global inequality and they find that that you know, capitalism was the main driver of the decrease in 
global inequality, and it's largely stagnated since like the 1950s with uh, within these OCED countries, as you had in the in the United States, for example, a 25 trillion dollar expenditure on a welfare state that has not done anything to poverty rates. Absolutely. Within the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. But even just piggybacking off my last point, even if capitalism didn't work, even if free markets didn't work, I'd rather be a poor free man than a rich slave. Like, I, like I, I, I don't even I just reject the entire premise. I mean, obviously, we know you've laid out all the statistics. Right. And free markets are the way to go. It's lifted more people close to a yep. billion people in the last hundred years out of poverty. Uh, as a as a Christian, I believe that capitalism and, and free markets are a gift from God, quite literally. Uh, it's been the greatest blessing uh, to the human race in, in centuries and centuries. Right. But even if it didn't work, like even if <laughs> communism somehow made people more prosperous, than free markets do, which is, of course, ridiculous. It's asinine. We all know that. But even if that were true, I wouldn't care. I'm a free man. I will remain a free man. If I'm a free, homeless man, I'd rather be free and homeless than rich and a slave to the state, period. Like, I think that that's, I, I can't you, get past that. Like, that, that's why I know I'll never bend an inch. I'll never give an inch to socialism because I really enjoy being free. If you are a proponent for the American founding, if you are a proponent for human freedoms, if you are a proponent for human rights, you must be a capitalist. There is no if, answer, buts about it. If you are a communist, you are not for personal freedom. If you are a communist, you are for authoritarian government and technocracy. There is no middle ground here. Robert Reich tries to cut the middle in his saving capitalism for the many, which still still makes the argument that capitalism is a good thing if harnessed correctly. Right. So if you are for communism at this point in world history, not only are you historically illiterate, but you are disgustingly authoritarian and you believe that the world should just bend to your every whim. It's such a arrogant point of view on the world and it's not backed up. Yeah, it's any arrogant. Facts. It's narcissistic. And, and what it boils down to, what, what's the difference between capitalism and communism? It's property rights. It all comes down to property rights. All rights are property rights, starting with the right to self-ownership, right? Being being a free man versus being a slave. Communists don't believe in, in property rights. They believe all property should be owned by the state. Uh, capitalists don't. So if, if you're in favor of property rights, you can't give an inch to these people. I mean, even you can't you can't vote for a Bernie Sanders who isn't. You know, I I don't know if I'd call him a, a communist, but well, hell, man, the communists and the socialists. Yeah, no, he's I mean, not. Look, He's communist. He was unsure. He was unsure by the end of the Cold War. Even after Chernobyl, he was unsure of what side of the Cold War he truly right. was on. He t he spent his honey. He spent his honeymoon in the Soviet Union. He sung the Soviet anthem multiple, multiple times. And now this man is in second shirtless. place. He, he in sang most the Soviet polls. anthem shirtless, no less. Yep, shirtless. Ter terrifying, horrifying shirtless. video, by the way. Uh, <laughs> not in not in very good shape. That Bernie yeah. Sanders. Not even back in the eighties. No, not even back in the eighties. Not even back in the eighties. I mean. Now he's he's second place in a Democratic primary. I mean, primary. gyms do not exist. That's, that's uh, by the way, I, I think that video proves gyms do not exist in uh, in communist countries. So, another reason. If you want to, right? They just throw you <laughs> in the coal mine. They just throw you in the coal mine and starve you and work you until you're fit. That's that's all there is. There's no there's no deciding whether or not you're going to go to the gym that day. Right. And, and the socialists and communists did use the two terms interchangeably, which is why I do as well. Um, you know. If they call themselves a, a, if they use those terms interchangeably, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you should take them seriously. But yeah, let's move on. I know right. we have a lot to cover, so let's move on. Um, the last couple weeks, a lot of people on the right, um, a lot of people, especially the, the hardcore MAGA Trumpster type right, um, 
a lot of folks have been attacking David French really hard. Uh, David French, he, I, I disagree with David on on some things, but I, I agree with him on a lot of things as well. But he's he's a tremendous writer over at National Review. Um, he's one of the brightest writers we have in the conservative movement, in my opinion. Um, so just take us. We'll, we'll we'll dive into it, but take us to the beginning of this debate. Why are so so many people so mad at David French right now, or at least mad at the the straw man version of David French? I don't know if they're actually mad at David himself, but yeah, take us back to the beginning of this. Right, they're they're very mad at Pastor French, which I mean, there's just so many ironies in this in this argument. It it almost gets hilarious. Um, this David French uh, and and really this this MAGA side, right? This more illiberal side is uh, voiced most uh, loudly, most forcefully, I would get, I would say, as from Sora Bamari. Um, Sora Bamari is basically saying that French is a squish um, and he's too polite to the militant left. And he's willing to kind of throw social conservative values by the wayside in the name of liberalism, in the name of, of personal autonomy. And, and I think David, that's, that's a complete straw man of David French. I don't think you'll, you'll meet another writer in the movement who has done more on the ground for the right to life, particularly right. if you're talking about socially conservative values. The number one socially conservative uh, issue right now is, Roe v, is overturning right. Roe v. Wade, is the right to life is the practice of aborting more than 900,000 children per year in the United States. Um, so it's it's absolutely insane. And, and Amari's kind of implies, the logical thinking of Amari's argument is that there's something inherent in liberalism that gets us drag queen reading hours at the Sacramento Public Library. Um, that's really how this right. whole thing started, where David French was like, okay, their freedom to associate, no one's forcing, they're not, children aren't taking... Uh, field trips to the library and having to listen to uh, drag queen reading hour. It's something that public libraries hosts events from Christian events to tea party events. I mean, public libraries in the tea party movement were a crucial reading or a place for tea partiers right. to meet where they could actually read the constitution aloud and arch arch uh, articulate their viewpoints. Um, and he's, and Omar is basically saying that there's something inherent in liberalism that gets us drag queen reading hour. And I don't think that that, fully addresses um, our cultural issues. I think you know, two books that really do address our, our cultural issues is Ben Shapiro's new new book, The Right Side of History and Suicide of the West by both Jonah Holder. And I think yes. that Ben and both are excellent. And ben, ben and Jonah kind of fall more into the David French camp uh, when it when it comes down to things. Now I get I, I get why people like uh, uh, shoot forgetting the gentleman's name. The uh, Breitbart writer. Amari. Amari. Yeah, I, I, I get yeah, he now works oh, at the New York right. Post. That's right. He's with yeah. the Post now. But um, I get just the big picture frustration with a lot of conservatives um, that from folks like Amari. The whole like Mitt Romney, it's better to lose with dignity than uh, put up a, a real fight. You know, like he he refused to go after Barack Obama on just about anything. Um, he let Obama walk all over him during mm -hmm. the 2012 campaign. I get that. So I get that, and so and I get why a lot of those people love a guy like Donald Trump because Trump fights, he he goes for the knockout. Unlike guys like Mitt Romney, unlike guys like you know, Mitch McConnell, maybe people like that. I get that, but I I don't see, but that's it. I don't see I don't see their argument past that. Yeah. Like that's a very fundamental, like elementary. That that's a mud puddle argument. That's that's an inch deep and a mile wide, right? Like I, I do understand that for me in my mind, the perfect conservative candidate or conservative commentator or whatever would be somebody that fights like Trump, that goes for the jugular like Trump, 
and lives their lives like David French. Like, there's no debate that <clears throat> that you'd rather have a friend like David French than a friend like Donald Trump. You'd rather have a family member like David than like Trump. Uh, he's clearly a, a superior human being in terms of morality. Why isn't that just the general consensus that, yeah, I get it. Like, we do want people that can fight a little harder than guys like John McCain or Mitt Romney. But David French is right about Trump and his his moral failings and everything else. Why? It, this seems pretty obvious to me. It doesn't seem like a debate. It, it doesn't seem like a debate that was worth having in the first place. It seems pretty obvious. Right. I don't understand why French has become the avatar of this um, of failing social I conservatism. I, I don't understand why he's. I don't understand it at all. Um, I think that French is absolutely right about Trump and his moral failings. Uh, yesterday, I was on the Hill. Uh, David French, uh, Pastor French, and uh, Alexander de Sanctimonious, as the Amari camp likes to call them, did a live recording of their podcast, Ordered Liberty, uh, in the Dirksen building. And I was able to attend that. And and French is really attacking one of Amari's main points in his argument that Donald Trump is a weapon of social cohesion, that he can be used to... um, to forward social cohesion. I think that is a ridiculous assertion. I think that Donald Trump's done, done a lot of good in uh, deregulating the economy and providing us tax cuts, but you know, 50%, 65% of the policies I say coming out of this administration are fantastic. But to argue that he is a weapon of social cohesion is just absolutely <laughs> absurd. I mean, let's let's the fact that they're calling David French Pastor French and Alexandria Alexander de Sanctis de Sanctimonious just proves the point that these people are the people that you want leading the social conservative movement, that they are good moral people and good moral standing in the public viewpoint um, that, that should be leading leading the cons- social conservative movement. Um, and I think that they're kind of distracting from the central problem. What is the, what is the problem in our society? What is the, what is the real core uh, driver of moral decay and, and people turning away from the religion in the United States? And I and it's not drag queen reading hour. It's not it's not because people want more drag queen reading hours in their public libraries. It's because the church has failed to address its problems properly, right? We talk about we talk about adultery being one of the main drivers. We talk about porn being one of the main drivers, and we talk about deception being being three of the, of the main drivers of the decay of the church. Well, I can't think of a more a better summarization than those three issues of the character failings of Donald (laughs) Trump. He's known for his adultery, he's known for his deception, and he's known for bolstering the porn industry for a long period of time. He has the Playboy cover of him on it framed in his office, not in the Oval Office, but his office in Trump Tower. Um, so, So I think that Amari can get something right here, though. I think that both French and Amari have their walls up right now because it's become personal. I think Amari can get something right with the fact that the social conservatives need to come out more in force um, in the conservative movement. And, and there can, can be some uh, liberal tendencies that in the long run can bolster liberal values, can bolster the founding. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think David French leaves a lot of wiggle room for because he's more focused on the character right, attacks. Right, right. And I think, you know, David French's only flaw in his arguments are that he does bring everything back to President Trump. Um, he does it, and I, his podcast is great. Ordered Liberty, Liberty, by the way, and I love Alexandra. She's been on my show a couple times. She's always a great guest. Um, it is a really good show. I've, I've recommended it before. Um, David French does bring a lot of. He he focuses a lot of energy 
on on Trump's character, which is necessary. Like that's good. We shouldn't. We can't look the other way when the when the president of the United States does something that we disagree with as conservatives or as religious people. Um, but you know, he does focus on it a ton. You know, I, I get it. Why why people like Armani, you know, get annoyed by that. I I get annoyed by it occasionally. It's like you know what. There's other things to talk about, like a you know a, a Virginia Democrat who's went to prison for raping a child uh, just got elected yesterday. Obviously, we could talk about the moral moral failings of of the other side as well. We don't have to just focus on the president, but you know these things also are not mutually exclusive. Like I agree, I'm on David French's side on this whole debate, and I'm also a Trump supporter that voted for him in 2016 and have already endorsed him in 2020 on this show. So like I, that might right. not make sense to a guy like David French, but these things are not mutually exclusive. The, the, you can, both things can exist at the same time. I, I think you're right. And I don't, I don't know if the conservative movement looks like Donald Trump, um, 40, 40 years down the line. I don't know what the path forward is with this illiberal movement. And, and the fact that, you know, more Donald Trump's are going to be the the forces of social cohesion. You mentioned earlier that you wanted someone who is a fighter like Trump, but is moral like David French. I mean, you get Abraham Lincoln and you get Ronald Reagan when you take those those two preconditions. And I think those are two of the best Republican presidents of all time. Uh, I don't think I think there can be a middle ground. I don't think they're they're mutually exclusive. The French and Amari viewpoints on the future of conservatism. I think that there can be a liberal steps that can help the preservation and advancement of ordered liberty, uh, which is the name of French's podcast and something that he's strong, he's very, a very strong proponent of. Um, I mean, let's look at the things Lincoln did during, during the Civil War, just leading up to the Civil War. Um, he sent troops to end the rebellion when Congress was out of session in, in the southern states, which Congress saw as an abuse of the presidential authority to declare war. Uh, he adds West Virginia as a state without Virginia's consent because it was separated off from Virginia. Uh, he shut down newspapers papers that opposed the war effort. The Emancipation Proclamation, of course, uh, was you know considered a, a, an abuse of executive authority by members not only in, of course, in the Confederacy, but also also the Union. Uh, so these were these were illiberal steps, and I don't think anyone would argue were not forwarding the purpose of liberty of, of ordered liberty in the long run, especially when we talk about uh, the African American population that was subjected to slavery since the early 1500s on this continent. Uh, so so maybe maybe French is right about Trump, but Amari can be right about the political need to exercise some power to solidify some gains for ordered liberty in the wrong long run to preserve our our republic against this militant left that seeks to uh, impose their morality from the top down. I mean, impose a very narrow, constantly changing version of morality from the top down. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I also think that... Um... Not only is the future of the conservative movement going to be a blend of the two, I think it has to be. Like, I don't think—obviously, uh, we can't—I I do believe President Trump, I'm glad he was elected. I hope he gets reelected in 2020. I think he, on a lot of his policies, is doing a good job. On other things, not so much. Um, but I think he's uh, necessary right now. But we also can't keep electing people like him. Like, we do need to elect more right. moral people, or the conservative movement's really going to turn off moderates and independents and—, and keep people away from our movement. So I think it has to be a blend of both. And also, I don't see the left. I don't see leftists calming down anytime soon. I don't think they're going to be more respectable and and moral uh, anytime soon. So I think, you know, a guy like George H.W. Bush, you know, like the old nice guy, mild-mannered, 
that guy's never going to get elected again. Like you do, you are going to need people that can fight. And it's not just the Trump movement. Like I remember in 2012 when uh, Newt Gingrich was running for president. I mean, I don't know if you remember on those debate stages how much of a pop he got from the crowd when he would go after the New York Times. Absolutely. He, I, I mean, mean, he was the, you know, all credit to Mr. Speaker. And I think that's why Ms. Uh, Newt Gingrich has written so much about, about the Trump movement in America is because that's what he was trying to, after the Clinton, you know, after the Clinton era, after, after the Bush era, he was trying to reignite that, that conservative, uh, that social conservatism that would actually fight and forward these issues instead of just being on their heels receiving everything right they weren't being active they were they were being receptive to whatever the left wanted wanted socially and that's what i mean i remember a great moment from from the debates was when uh when newt gingrich was up there was he would go on the attack and attack and attack and then the last question was how would you describe your campaign and newt gingrich described his campaign in one word as cheerful um so that was like that awesome dissonance where he's like he's happy to right, be right. fighting for these values and i think that we need right. people who are happy to be there fighting for those values donald trump is happy happy to be fighting this fight but i don't think it's a sustainable model for us moving forward if we want if we want ordered liberty to survive we need to synthesize the the french Anamari positions where we we need to solidify our gains but we also need to be conscious that we need to keep our morality in check before we can actually make those gains um, and and you know in order to prevent them to be used against us in the future by a Kamala Harris administration or an Elizabeth Warren administration because you give these people an inch they'll take it a mile unless you are really careful about how you go about doing it a hundred percent i absolutely agree with you um one more topic before i let you go we were going to talk about the uh potential uh trade deal with mexico i'm going to save that for next week because we're almost out of time um but w- one more topic and uh sticking on the 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 topic of morality um you know people on both sides talk a lot about president trump's morality or lack thereof and justifiably so i mean obviously you know cheated on his both of his wives, three of his wives, you know, and et cetera, you can go down the list. But it really chaps my ass, Brad, <laughs> when the Democratic Party tries to claim the moral high ground uh, on anything. Because it is just not, it's, it's, it's not justified. Not only do they advocate for communism, which is akin to slavery, not only are they the party of, of late-term abortion and infanticide, which they are, Yesterday, Virginia Democrats voted uh, to elect a convicted felon who went to prison for a few months uh, on statutory rape charges. Uh, He had sex with a a young girl uh, who he ended up marrying when she turned 18, I believe. Um, A fellow by the name of Joe Morrissey. Um, This is obviously the same state with a a blackface Democratic governor, a blackface Democratic attorney general, and a a Democratic lieutenant governor who's been credibly accused of sexually assaulting at least two women. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole Democrats are the the moral party thing absolutely carries no water. It drives me absolutely nuts. Seeing a guy like Joe Morrissey elected last night um, as they're they're calling President Trump's morality into question is a little bit rich. Let me be clear to the members of the Virginia Republican Party. Right. We do. You, need to, we do need to discuss them as well. Yes. You are a disgrace to the Republican Party. You have a governor that wore blackface. You have an attorney general who wore brown makeup, blackface. And you also have a lieutenant governor who has credible allegations of sexual assault. On top of that, you have Corey Stewart, who is a man from the Midwest that somehow claims Southern heritage and is friends of Paul Nealon. Um, 
absolutely get blown away in an election for a flippable Senate seat. And now you have Joe Morrissey, a convicted pedophile or statutory rapist, I forget exactly what the charge you were saying, win in Virginia. You are a disgusting disgrace. The Virginia Democratic Party is a disgusting disgrace. But the failings of the Virginia Republican Party to organize against absolutely morally abhorrent people and actions is just despicable. And I mean, really, if I'm the RNC, I'm sitting there thinking, I want a clean house in Virginia, get every person who is working on these campaigns and losing consistently to a disgusting, corrupt Democratic Party out of out of the grassroots movement. And I need I need new blood at this point. I mean, I'm looking for new blood in Virginia because this is just unacceptable. We cannot have um, if we if we want to win elections in the future in Virginia and let alone on the national stage, we need to get rid of these people who cannot win a freaking election against some one who is wearing blackface or someone who is <laughs> accused of sexual assault or someone who is a convicted statutory rapist. I mean, this is ridiculous. I know. We need a complete shutdown of the state of Virginia, both parties, until we can figure out what the hell it's, is going on. And yeah, yeah, really. This you're is, this absolutely is what, right. What the hell is on speech Donald Trump needs to give is, you know, he said what the hell is going on with uh, immigration from uh, Middle Eastern Islamic countries. Well, what the hell is going on in the state of Virginia? I mean, that's his next speech. You know, what the hell is going on? You're right. That's a, that's a great point. And we do have to talk about the Virginia Republican Party because, obviously, the Democratic Party in the state of Virginia, they're a bunch of racist, wife-beating, kid-fucking monsters and the, the the Virginia Republicans can't beat them. If you can't beat, I mean, the Virginia Republicans—they're the Cleveland Browns, man. They they find creative ways, like you said with Corey Stewart. They find creative ways to lose these races. They're 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 grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory here. It is is an absolute disgrace. If you can't beat these people, I mean, these are. If you were to say, Brad, who would you want to run against? If you ran for office, you'd say Ralph Northam. <laughs> <laughs> right. You you would you would say, would say Fairfax. You'd say this this pedophile, convicted pedophile, a disbarred lawyer, Joe Morrissey. I mean they're they're just tailor made to get beat in a general election and the, the Virginia Republicans can't do it. I mean, these guys have more baggage than a Samsonite store and we can't figure out how to organize <laughs> to beat these folks. It's absolutely ridiculous. It is disgusting to be a part of a party that cannot win uh and- and, and a lot of my friends in Virginia are saying this. It is disgusting to be a part of a party that cannot beat these racist, sexual assaulting hooligans. It's disgusting. Have, have you ever worked on a campaign? I've worked on a few campaigns. I don't know if you have any campaign experience. I do have some campaign experience back when I yeah. was 15. That was the first campaign I worked on. And we never, I mean, it's like you're just giving gifts to your opponents at this point. I mean, literally <laughs> – Government, I mean, Governor Ralph Northam is like Amazon priming bad, like just absolutely fantastic news to any of his opponents. All of these candidates are just like sending next day delivery of an easy win. But the Virginia GOP just can't put it together. It's ridiculous. I know the Democrat, they're they're Leroy Jenkinsing themselves. Right. They're absolutely Leroy Jenkinsing themselves. (laughs) The Republicans can't capitalize. Like, look, man, if I'm sitting in the campaign office on these campaigns I've I've worked for and and we get the news that that our opponent was was pictured in blackface, we're like, 
we're getting drunk tonight, boys. <laughs> Let's pop some bottles. Right. We're going to win this easily. You know what I'm saying? Oh, right. my goodness. It's absolutely embarrassing. They, they need some new blood in the Virginia Republican Party. Uh, it, it, they are an a dis- absolute disgrace. So, Brad, hey, uh, the, the audience won't know because I'm going to edit this, but we've had some uh, technical difficulties and stuff. Thanks for bearing with me through that. Um, and thanks for coming on, man. I'll definitely have to have you back on soon. Uh, hopefully it won't take, you know, six months or whatever uh, ne- until the next time you come <laughs> on. But, uh yeah, man, it's, it's always a good time talking to you. Where can everybody uh, find you online and uh, read your stuff and, and keep in touch and all that good stuff? Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I, I hope to be coming back soon. Um, my name is Bradley Devlin, as he said. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Bradley Devlin. Um, find me on Lone Conservative. I write a regular column there. Um, and every once in a while featured on the Daily Wire. So uh, if you can find me, please read my stuff. Uh, I really appreciate all the support that the No Gimmicks Gimmicks makes podcast gives me uh and all of you guys on social media give me so thank you so much absolutely everybody follow brad he's great check out daily wire check out lone conservative two great sites um yeah that's i'm that's all i got for today i'm brady leonard i'll be back on monday no gimmicks